0: the old rules of trying to read the economic cycles became secondary, anticipating the cycles of disruption was really now the new challenge.
1: Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Simon Freakley. He's the chief executive officer of management consulting firm Alex Partners. He'll talk about how successful leaders navigate disruption and how they can even anticipate it. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please, take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader.
0: There's a lot of opportunity inherent in disruption, and the best companies, the best management teams, the best leaders will be at the leading edge of that.
1: Simon Freakley is the CEO of Alex Partners, a consulting firm with two and a half thousand employees in 26 offices around the world. It's a firm that specializes in helping leaders navigate change, things like restructuring or operational transformation. Of course, the past 18 months have brought change of a different sort, from COVID to the climate crises, driving home how leaders must drive through uncertainty without ever having all the information they want on hand. Simon talked to Meet the Leader about change and urgent challenges, and the research his firm has conducted on disruption. This work started in 2019 and has continued since, even leading to a special disruption index published this past spring. Its insights on managing and anticipating change can be critical for future leaders to succeed. He also shared with Meet the Leader the lessons he learned from his very first job as an apprentice in his father's boat building business. The classic skills he learned there can anchor any leader and help them navigate in uncertain times.
0: You can't be efficient uh, with people. You can only be effective with people.
1: He'll talk about all that, but first he'll discuss his firm's research on disruption and the surprising findings that can help any leader.
0: So I had about eight of our consultants work full-time for most of a year during 2019 to really study what the major forces of disruption were on big business around the world. And we took five industries and we studied the major corporations in those industries around the world on the major stock market, so 635 companies in just over 60 stock markets around the world. And then we looked at the performance of those companies over a multi-year period, and then we split them into quartiles. And we tried to study what the common denominators were in the top quartile performers, and what the common denominators were in the bottom quartile performers, to see how management teams were responding to forces of disruption what we found, Linda, which wasn't a surprise, was that the forces of disruption that we all knew were happening, you know, not just technology, but technology and spades, you know, environmental issues, regulatory issues, climate issues, were playing out in so many industries around the world. But what was an insight for us was what was happening at the intersection of these things, because these forces weren't operating in isolation, they were, they were butting up against each other. And truthfully, I think that You know, governments, regulators have become pretty good over the last 10 or 20 years in managing economic cycles. What became so obvious to us during this research, uh, this study, was that actually the cycles of disruption were more regular uh, and more impactful than the economic cycles. So the old rules of trying to read the economic cycles became secondary. Anticipating the cycles of disruption and how they butted up against each other was really now the new challenge. And then one more thing as we looked at the intersection of these disruptions was that if you look within technology, which, of course, we all completely understand as a major disruptor to every industry and market, within technology, of course, is connectivity. And so smartphones, for instance, of which there are about 3 billion uh, in the world today, studies show that people on average spend three hours a day on their smartphones. So you have 3 billion people spending on average three hours a day connecting to their universe of news and goods and services um, through the ability to connect. And so geography becomes less important in terms of how these services and goods are delivered than they had historically been in a pre-connectivity era. And so brands, interestingly enough, became more important as a result of connectivity rather than less important because of the breadth of services available. And so people were looking to brands for reliability in their news, for quality uh, in their goods and services, and also looking for the principles that these companies ran themselves by to make sure that that was a company they wanted to affiliate with. So this this study exposed all sorts of interesting uh, connections at the intersection of these disruptions.
1: In your mind, given both uh, the research that you had, your experience, and also just your sort of um, eyes on this last 18 months, uh, how can someone anticipate disruption? What should they be thinking about? What should leaders be thinking about?
0: Well, you know, Linda, I think at the crux of this question is every business in every industry is going to get disrupted. And so one needs to disrupt oneself before somebody else does it to us, uh, whether it be a competitor or a market. So I think the one bit of learning out of this for us has been is disrupt ourselves. So imagine that you had an activist in your balance sheet. You're a public company. You now, what would the activist be stirring the pot and saying? Uh, And actually just being one's own activist, uh, being one's own disruptor, because interestingly enough, of course, you know, we always think or often think about disruption as representing challenges and threats, which, of course, they do. But uh, disruptions create an opportunity for new entrants uh, into those markets. You know, barriers of entry have Uh, often drop as a result of disruptive forces. There's also opportunity for existing players as well. And so capitalizing on the opportunities, mitigating the threats is really what every management team is doing. How to take advantage of new technologies, new insight, how to use your data. You know, many people now are collecting data, which is great, but the problem that so many companies find is that they're data rich, but insight poor. They actually haven't got the tools, the artificial intelligence tools, uh, digital tools to really understand what the data is telling them about customer preferences, about how they should think about pricing, how they should think about their supply chains. Um, and so there's opportunity and disruption, not just challenge.
1: When people are thinking about this as well, are, are there other maybe, um, things people aren't thinking about? Are there myths even about disruption and navigating disruption that in your mind sort of sort of need dispelling?
0: I think that one has to be on constant alert for disruption because you can't measure disruption by trailing indicators. You really have to look at disruption by by way of leading indicators. What do I mean by that? That markets are developing and morphing all of the time. So it's always been this way, but the best business leaders can often read where the markets are going. And the combination of these disruptive forces makes reading the markets more difficult because of the choppiness of the intersection of the disruptions. But I think there is rich opportunity for people who really do stay on the leading edge of developing their products, developing their services, developing their routes to market. And so I think that the main myth that I would want to expose is that disruption is all bad. I think there's actually a lot of opportunity inherent in disruption. And the best companies, the best management teams, the best leaders will be at the leading edge of that.
1: And a lot of companies may not have been maybe uh, factoring the climate too much into things. Uh, But when you talk about like disruption, you talk about um, opportunity. There is a massive opportunity, even for people who might not think that they are um, a climate-related business, right? Uh, Almost anything uh, has an opportunity to sort of change how they do so that they can collaborate, work with others and things like that. Um, In your mind, um, uh, as we look at sort of these big disruptions that we have maybe going for the environment, how people need to be like using resources or using energy, um, is there a way that they can be looking at that uh that huge system wide shift that's going to take years as an opportunity.
0: <laughs> mm. No, I think it I think I'm right in saying it was Bill Gates that um, that was the first person to say this, that often we um overestimate the speed at which change is going to happen, but underestimate the scale of the transformation, the change yes. that's happening. Uh, and I, I think that is so true. And in, in this respect, I think that you know, whilst there's clearly an urgency in terms of responding to the disruptive forces, mitigating the threats, capitalizing on the opportunities, the truth is that um, many of the market developments on the back of disruption do take a little while to play out, and so how to get ahead of that? I mean, a couple of examples. If you look at, you know, electric vehicles and autonomous driving technology, you know, we've, we've seen this coming for a while. We're now starting to get to a point where it's getting meaningful. But for some time, the industry as a whole has had to be making, you know, staggering investment in the technologies that make electrification and autonomous driving possible. The numbers are so large that individual automakers themselves really can't afford them. So there's these collaborations and partnerships have emerged as people start to share technology and share investment to get ahead of, um, you know, the developments required to produce commercially viable electric vehicles. I mean, it's staggering, isn't it? When you think that, um, you know, Tesla with 2% of the revenues of the major manufacturers combined has got a value of more than all of them combined. Uh, And why is that? Well, clearly Tesla had first mover advantage. You know, they didn't make a perfect product, but they kept ahead of the game enough to be able to still be a leader in that market and everybody's been chasing them since but the investment required by the major auto manufacturers around the world to have um, reliable and scalable technology is 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 utterly staggering so you know renault for instance um big european auto manufacturer has announced that the vast majority 90 percent, i think of their production is going to be uh electrical vehicles by 2030 well 2030 is only eight and a half years yeah, away. Right. It's now becoming quite proximate. So we've seen it coming. It's it, you know it started coming slowly. It's now coming quickly. But the scale of the change, but the scale of the investment required to do that is is staggering.
1: Sure. <clears throat> and uh, to to lift on what you were talking about opportunity. I'm a Detroit girl myself. And I can tell you that throughout my life, if you had told someone that we were going to have electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles, they would have laughed at you. And they said, well, why? We have trucks and they're fine. If you're looking backwards, if you're looking at what people have historically bought, historically needed, then you're you're never going to open yourself up to what is the new opportunity. Uh, I think that's, that's sort of interesting.
0: Exactly. Fairly quickly, it's going to be not just commonplace to have, you know, the primary family vehicle, for those lucky enough to have more than one as the electric vehicle. But, you know, the majority of road, road haulage are going to be electrified. And then it isn't uh, long before they're not just electrified but autonomous. And then you look at the consequential disruption on the labor market of that. Obviously, the, the road freight industry is a major employer uh, in the United States and also around the world. You know, that, th- there's going to be enormous displacement uh, of labor. Uh, Ginny Romerty when she was CEO of IBM, d- did a study... Multi-year study, and they concluded that the the half-life of a skill set at IBM was three years. And so, of course, what that means is that individuals have to take responsibility themselves, but also corporations have to take responsibility for the upskilling, um, the retraining of employees as certain skill sets become either much less in demand or, in some cases, obsolete. And so, the, the the consequence of this disruption, we can see it happening on the demand side, but also when you look at the Effect on, for instance, labor markets, what that means in terms of the priority for governments, corporations, and individuals to take responsibility for retraining skills so that people have relevant skills for an increasingly digital economy, the effect is utterly profound.
1: Tell me a little bit about yourself, right? Is there something that helps you? Is there an experience that you've had in your career that um, has shaped you, guided you, maybe even a time that you yourself have sort of needed to to deal with a pivot and shape that and figure out what's the next path? Anyway, is there an, a key experience that has sort of shaped you as a leader?
0: Very, very early on, after I graduated from um, from university, I was training uh, as what they call in the UK a chartered accountant. I was training as a chartered accountant with Arthur Anderson, and it was in the early 1980s which of course now feels like the middle ages but in the early 1980s it was uh, a recessionary period in the uk and so there was a, an awful lot of restructuring going on and so as a, as a brand new recruit to arthur anson i was put straight into the restructuring group to help out as an extra pair of arms and legs uh, as um, as the firm was doing lots of restructuring work and so i found myself aged you know 22 now, at the front end, you know, with obviously much more senior people running the cases uh, of these restructurings. And so uh, literally in my first year in the workforce, I found myself having to lay off many people in these companies that were either failing or being restructured. And so I'd be, you know, addressing workforces and um, and dealing with the redundancies. And I remember talking to somebody at the time about I found this quite stressful as a, you know, a young Professional having to you know lay people off at these these companies, and um, this this chap has said to me that when he was when he was in college, uh, he had a holiday job, uh, which was repossessing rental televisions from poor housing areas. You know, people would rent their televisions by the week because they couldn't afford to buy them, and if they fell behind on their payments, you know, he and you know an army of people would descend and and repossess the televisions. And I said, oh my goodness, I can't imagine a more difficult job going and you know asking to take the television out and he said to me you know the one thing i learned doing that holiday job and of course i then realized the extreme parallel to my situation of having to lay so many people off and um, tell them that they they'd lost their jobs was he said if you if you treat people respectfully and listen to them that they at a human level know the fact that you have a difficult job to do but if you deal with them with empathy and, and deal with them with respect that they will enable you to do your job, which everybody realizes is a challenging job. And it was such an incredibly helpful insight early on in my career, because I think that 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 is so true in so many of our interactions with each other. You know, they're not all difficult, but, you know, some of them are difficult. And I think listening, showing respect and having some empathy is absolutely critical. Uh, to dealing with some of the difficult things that business leaders have to handle.
1: Sure. No, absolutely. And and it is such an important thing. And I think, uh, especially with the speed of business and the speed of change and people get sort of uh, in in the busyness of their day, uh, uh, people can deprioritize empathy. Is there a question they should be asking themselves? Is there something they can be doing a gut check to be like, no, am I making time for this?
0: Well, I would say the lesson I've learned uh, in all of this is you can't be efficient Uh, with people. You can only be effective with people. Effectiveness means I think you do have to listen carefully. You do have to treat everybody as an individual. Uh, You have to engage people as a person. People know that there are difficult jobs to be done, but the way in which those interactions are handled, I think, define the outcomes uh, of those situations.
1: I saw an interview that you did. Uh, you'd given advice for you know, young people at the beginning of their career, and you said that studying people is at the root of everything. How does that sort of also fit in to this to this idea?
0: Well, I think I think that's at the nub of it, honestly, Linda. I think just understanding people. You know, every interaction, every interaction, most interactions in a business context uh, are through people. You know, transmitting messages is one thing, but listening to messages. Uh, Is also a critical part of communication. I think engaging with people, understanding people's motivations, not in a Machiavellian sense, but in a sense of just understanding where people are coming from. You know, the old Stephen Covey expression of seek first to understand, I think is just a critical life skill. And so I do think that uh, understanding human behavior, realizing that people are often driven by their, you know, fears as much as by their ambitions. Uh, understanding that people might not be very effective at delivering their message, but really trying to seek to understand what they're trying to say, so that in a response, you're tailing it to what they're meaning to say rather than what they might literally say. I think are are things that one increasingly understands and um, insights that one gathers through experience, but I think prioritizing early on an understanding of people, as I've observed very successful people in business, um, that seems to be at, at the root of a lot of their success.
1: Your your father had a, a boat building business. Yes, uh, <laughs> and I think that's fascinating. Uh, and can can you talk a little bit about that, and also sort of like how that impacted you? It's a very unique type of business. You uh, had a hands on role in it. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that and how it shaped you?
0: Yeah, my um, you know my father had a small business. It was a as you say a boat building business. My mother was a school teacher. Um, and so, you know, they were both working parents, but my, our, our family home was in the boatyard. And so I grew up in the boatyard. And so, you know, as with many small businesses, it was, you know, every day of the week. And so at weekends, I'd be in the boatyard with my father and, um, you know, his, his staff doing various things. And there was always something to do, scraping the bottom of boats or painting them or, you know, I have very fond memories as a small child of being dangled into places, you know, by my feet to paint the bits that adults couldn't reach. It was a protected environment, I guess, because we grew up largely in the boatyard. I had the great good fortune, of course, as a result of that, of seeing a lot of my parents. Uh, And so it was a very sort of engaged, very engaged upbringing. But at at the root of it, you know, my father had customers, he had suppliers, he had a workforce. It wasn't a big business; maybe he employed twenty-five or thirty people. Uh, and so, you know, every weekend I'd be trailing around the boat, boatyard with him, and in a school holidays and after school, and so I did get a lot of sort of first-hand mentoring and apprenticeship from him about how to how to deal with people. He was always very good at engaging them. As individuals he just didn't have a generalized message for everybody it was an apprenticeship model and I sort of assumed I would go on to be a boat builder myself and then my dad said to me when I was about you know 15 and in response to somebody asking what I was going to do and I said oh um you know I guess I'd be a boat builder which my father jumped straight in and said absolutely not he said if you want your own business you can go and start your own business <laughs> he said yeah. it's far too easy just to step into mine and so he really did push me out of the nest and of course uh that was exactly the right thing to do, but it was a, um, it was it was a, it was a privileged environment in so much that I got to spend a lot of time with both parents, but particularly with him in a business environment, uh, and got to watch and learn and you know find my own feet in that way.
1: Is there um, a way that maybe you deal with maybe challenging situations with people, or maybe even just people in general? That if if you hadn't had this experience with your father, watching him, that you you just wouldn't have that trait or that skill set. You wouldn't solve it in the same way.
0: Well, I think I, I make a couple of comments. I mean, clearly there's a time for action, and you know leaders have a responsibility to make decisions often um, with imperfect information, but. In the, when you're not in a situation where a decision is required, I think often the most powerful thing is to ask questions. And by asking questions, one gets not just more information, but the root of somebody's position. The, the other thing I've learned is that, you know, if somebody's very angry or very upset, there's an energy in that. And somebody once pointed out to me, you know, in judo, you know, the magic of judo is that when somebody uh, takes a run at somebody, they, they don't try and block the energy they roll the energy into their next move. And I think that in conversational terms with somebody that's very upset or energized, that exactly the same principle is true. You don't try and say you're wrong. That's absolutely not right. You know, I couldn't disagree with you more. That's, that's trying to block them, which only seems to inflame the problem, but actually rolling it and saying, you're very upset about this. I can see how concerned you are about it. You know, it must be very upsetting to you. Can I just understand what it is specifically that's caused this issue to happen? You roll that energy into what hopefully then becomes a less um, aggressive and more productive conversation. So I think that's just a um, it's a law of physics <laughs> in conversational terms that um, that manages to roll energy in something more productive. But I think honestly, we all develop our coping mechanisms for these difficult situations, and the truth is that there are many difficult interactions, particularly when you're trying to make change happen, fundamental change on a schedule.
1: You talked a little bit about asking questions and leaders just in general and asking questions to sort of get a, get a good grounding and context of the situation. But of course, there is that sort of time for, for decisions. Um, you know, how can anyone be more, more decisive?
0: Well, I think that um, once again, everybody develops their own style. But I, I have a view that as a leader, one's job is to get the best information available in what is often a limited time frame and then to make a decision and, and of course the truth is when you're in a management team or a group of people uh, people will have different views and so if i happen to be the chief executive or the leader in a situation i'll say look you know i want to hear the arguments but to be clear my job is to listen to what you have to say And then to make a decision. This isn't a cooperative. It's not a democracy. My job is to make the decision. Your job is to make sure I have the best insights on on which to make that decision. So I make it clear that this isn't something we're going to vote on. It's not something where there's going to be a show of hands. It's something where there's going to be a process to quickly work out what the options are. And then the leader is mandated to make that decision. People might have different views as to whether it's the, the right decision or not. But making a decision and moving to action is often the most important thing a, a leader can do.
1: Is there sort of a, a tough decision that you had to make uh, that sort of stands out to you? And you can kind of take us through, like, you know, hey, here's here's what I here's what I I, I took stock of, and here's how uh, I decided we needed
0: to to move forward. I think it's it's so interesting, Linda, I, sometimes people will say, my goodness, that must have been a very difficult decision to make. It might be a people issue. It might be a client issue. In reality, what people assume are difficult decisions aren't difficult decisions at all, because where there is a right or a wrong, or well, there's a the value set that if you are a values-based leader, uh, it's evident what the right thing is to do. The consequences of the decision might be significant. You know, it might be very upsetting for a whole bunch of people, but often the right decision is actually quite clear, and you just need to take it and move on and deal with the consequences. The more difficult decisions, in my experience, are those where there isn't a right or a wrong. Actually, it's about striking a balance. You know, where is the right point to balance something in terms of an outcome? And I, you know, this is, I just mentioned this, because of course, we're all going through a version of this at the moment, you know, we're as a company I mentioned, two and a half thousand people, 26 offices in 14 countries around the world, and we're having to respond to the situation of COVID. So when is the right moment to move from a semi-remote way of working to an in-person way of working? And of course, this requires a balance. The balance is on the one hand, uh, we know we want to keep our people safe. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say being at home is the way to keep them safest. On the other hand, Uh, consulting is an apprenticeship model. It's a mentorship model. We learn by seeing people who've been doing it for longer and are very good at doing something, how to do something well. So there's a premium in getting people together. And so where is the balance between keeping people safe and um, ensuring that the business is vital and energized by having the interactions with clients and colleagues that are required to run a people business? Those decisions are more difficult because there isn't a right answer. It's just where is the right place to balance and one has to take into account you know the medical advice and the territories the you know the, the real issues of people trying to manage elderly relatives young children uh, and having the flexibility to enable people to size how they engage in a working environment to suit their particular situation but also making sure the center of gravity of the business is in the right place as we come out of the pandemic Th- those decisions are more difficult because there isn't a right and a wrong it's just a matter of doing the right thing by the company. But what I find is so helpful in these situations is being really clear about what the values are that drive those decisions. And so as a firm, we have, like every firm does, we have a set of core values. And we always try and use our core values to help us make those balanced decisions, you know, core values of, um, you know, teamwork, you know, how do we keep each other safe, but also be the best team, key value of core value of communication, how we make sure we really explain not just what the answer is, but the way we got to the answer and why we think that's the right answer. And what I often say to my colleagues is, you know, look, we have imperfect information here, and we're trying to strike a balance. Uh, This is where we're going to come out. And let me just explain to you how we reach this decision by reference to our values and the best advice that we have. And then, of course, you always reserve the right to make a better or a different decision later as as the fact pattern changes. But these are the the cases, I think, where one has to be thoughtful, one has to take advice, but one does have to move to action. Uh, And there isn't an obvious right answer often, but you do have to make a decision.
1: You mentioned uh, that, in part, there's this sort of apprenticeship uh, element uh, within consulting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that there's this just really unique tie between um, sort of learning uh, from uh, folks and experience, learning from others uh, in your work. But that ties back to your days uh, in boat building.
0: (laughs) Right. So much of life let alone businesses about human interaction it's about understanding people and so in a business like ours a consulting business management consulting business uh, but it's true for all people businesses you know we we principally learn by observing and studying people that have been doing it for longer than we have and have become very practiced and ultimately masterful at something and so there are clearly you know skills attributes and experiences that make up somebody's ability to do a job but working with people who are practiced and masterful at doing something in a consulting business, but I have to say it's just as true in a law firm or a, an accounting firm or a, any type of people business, the proximity and the ability to learn from others is, is critical. And so funnily enough, I think for our business, Alex Partners, and many um, many of your listeners, we've all been staggered about how well we've all been able to cope in this virtual and semi-virtual environment. I mean, goodness knows what would have happened uh, if we'd had a pandemic before the internet, how we'd have coped. But anyway, we've, we've, we've all done rather well in it, I think. But the, the bottom line is that whilst everybody's coped incredibly well with this form of virtual working uh, and collaborating, it doesn't in any way replace the essential uh, value of the interactions, the physical interactions that come with working in a team room together, you know, being in meetings together, being able to sit down with one's clients and talk about issues thoroughly. I also think, by the way, that there's something (laughs) metaphysical that happens when people are physically together. What people say is, you know important but there's also lots and lots of other information that's available for you when you're physically with somebody you can see how they're sitting you can see how they're holding themselves are they anxious are they excited are they frightened you know uh, are they fearful you get a, all this extra information when you're with somebody in person and i think this additional dimension that has been missing for the last 18 months largely Uh, because everybody is in a virtual or semi-virtual environment. I think there's a craving to get back to in-person activity for some of these reasons.
1: That makes sense. Uh, Is there a book that you recommend?
0: I've just recently read a book, which I think is really, really good. And I wish that I'd read it um, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, it's It's a book called Talent is Overrated. And then the subtext of the book is what really separates world-class performers from everybody else, written by a chap called Jeff Colvin. Uh, and what I really liked about the book was that uh, the principle is that actually talent is overrated, that, that people, some people are born with these great talents, sports people, musicians, mathematicians, and whatever, which of course is terrific, but all that gives them is a head start. And the analysis and research that was done Uh, for this book shows that very quickly people who very who deliberately practice the core skills of being very good at something overtake the people that seem to have the early and obvious talent and that the the world-class performers may or may not have had some early talent but that isn't the thing that defines the fact that they become world-class and what I love about the book is that it's not you'll you probably remember Malcolm Gladwell's Uh, book, Outliers, when it talked about 10,000 hours of practice. This is a much more sophisticated articulation of that, which is not just 10,000 hours. It's, it's you know, if you want to be a great golfer, you just don't play lots of golf. What you do is you very specifically and surgically practice, you know, a number of the key things that make world-class golfers. And it's the practice, the deliberate practice that produces world-class performance. And I think that as I read it, uh, and really reflected on it, I do think that there's a lot for the corporate world to read into that. That actually deliberate practice in a very purposeful way is what ultimately makes world-class performers.
1: With all the changes that we've sort of talked about, has has the role for CEOs changed? And, and how should they be thinking about that?
0: Do you know, I think that uh, it's evolved. Uh, you know, the, the core responsibility of a CEO, which is to deli- deliver value to stakeholders of course is still table stakes I mean there's no there's no getting away from that but the job is now much more complicated than it was because we now j- not only have to deliver shareholder value equity growth um, and return you know we do have to comment on important social issues you know that used to be something that was left to other people but it's now required in many cases for CEOs to have a position. On things that are important to their workforce, important to their customers, important to society general, um, you know, social justice, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, that really every business leader had to have a view on this because it wasn't okay to stay silent, and um, and now customers, employees, specifically require leaders to have positions on these things so you know Atlanta voting rights would be another example where certainly if you had a significant presence in Atlanta you better have a position on this and so I think that I think it is more complicated and then br- more broadly than that you know, the whole ESG agenda that, that making money is no longer enough you know we have to look at the environmental consequence as well as the social of course but also the the governance issues and so I think that the demands on business leaders are now even greater. Uh, We often say that chief executives have to be their own chief communication officers. This isn't something you can delegate to a PR department. And so chief executive leaders generally have to be able to articulate a position on these things. And uh, that is different than it was even 10 years ago.
1: And for our last question, is there a thought or idea You'd like to leave our listeners with?
0: I was chatting with a, a stand up comedian one time. He's the son of a great friend of mine. He's a comedian called Nick Kroll. Uh, and I said to him, you know, because I, I see him when I saw his parents quite often, I say to him, I, did, I just, of all the hard jobs in the world, being a stand up comedian must be the hardest job of all. I mean, just getting up in front of an audience and, you know, without any notes and having to make them laugh. I just, I mean, I just admire you so much for doing it because you must have to have such fortitude to be able to do that job. And he said, you know, Simon, he said, I I decided early on that I would much rather deal with failure than regret. And it really struck a chord with me. I think it's it's such a metaphor for life, you know, actually far better to give something your best shot. And even if you don't succeed first time, second time, third time, fourth time, the learning that comes from that means that you actually do have the opportunity to to achieve some things that if you don't try, you never do. So I think dealing with failure rather than regret is actually quite a good lesson for all of us.
1: That was Simon Freakley. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Radio Davos and Meet the Leader will release special environment episodes leading up to COP 26, the Global Climate Summit, this November. Here's a preview of what you can expect on Radio Davos.
2: I'm swimming in the water. I'm in the ice and I've been in the ice for the last 18 years and I'm seeing the changes and I'm feeling it. You don't have to be an extreme swimmer like Lewis Pugh braving sub zero Arctic waters to notice climate change is really happening. Immense storms that come
1: down, wipe away homes, forests going up in flames around the world, people in subways in China and in New York. So, what was seen as this far away problem is now here and now.
2: As the COP26 climate summit approaches, the Radio Davos podcast will take you to the heart of the problem with some of the world's top thinkers.
0: We are already in a period of climate change. It's already begun. Weather extremes will be ever
2: more extreme and more common. So we'll have more severe storms, more floods, more droughts. And that's the result of not doing very much effective about it. Frankly, that's where we're going right now. That is the scenario we're headed toward. In a series of special episodes leading up to the climate summit, Radio Davos will take you into the cold but worryingly warming waters of the Arctic. I remember opening my curtains at 4am, getting ready for the swim, and one of these icebergs dislodged. It was like an explosion. Thousands and thousands and thousands of icebergs pouring out. It was like a motorway. And we'll talk to people who are not giving up hope that we can avert catastrophe. We need different solutions
1: that actually prioritise the well-being of people and the planet.
2: We will have gotten the Earth back on a much more benign climate trajectory. And as the politicians talk the talk... The adolescence of humanity is coming to an end. It's time for
0: humanity to grow up.
2: We'll be looking for solutions in areas such as the ocean, forests, energy, and our cities.
0: We could stop using our atmosphere as an open sewer.
2: Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Don't miss our coverage of climate change and COP26.
0: That's... Would
2: have a real impact on Radio Davos.
1: That was my colleague Robin Pomeroy previewing his special COP26 episodes of Radio Davos. Find episodes of that and Meet the Leader at wef.ch slash podcasts. That's it for me. Thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation of Meet the Leader. And my thanks go out to this week's guest, Simon Freakley. And thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts and follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.